0: I want to start tonight with a little bit, of, little bit of bad news and some good news. So, bad news. There's a pop quiz hidden in this sermon. It's like the, mo- the least enjoyable toy hidden in the bottom of the cereal box. Good news. It's the easiest pop quiz you've ever seen. So, first question, I hope you studied. Can anyone tell me what this is? This is hard. Dollar, dollar, uh, dollar, dollar bill, y'all. That is correct. Thank you, Brian. It's a dollar bill. Of course. But what is a dollar bill, exactly? You know, it's it's creased cotton mixed with green and black ink, I suppose. It's, it's a bundle of serial numbers and legal phrases. It's a collection of imagery depicting the great seal of the United States, the pyramid and the eagle, which according to its designer, Charles Thompson, I know how to use Google, symbolizes American values like unity, strength, war, self-reliance, and providence. Try not to think too much about how self-reliance and providence go together. That's just what that guy on Google said. And it's also a measuring stick for the value of something. This represents one unit's worth of goods and services. There is a lot going on inside this so-called piece of paper. And I love thinking thinking to myself about this stuff. What is something, really? What does it mean? What does it represent? That's super cool to me. But knowing what something represents or means doesn't by itself actually do anything. So this dollar bill is a tiny patriotic propaganda poster and it equals the number one. That's great. So what? For all that wonderful trivia and philosophy, it doesn't actually do anything until I trade it for something concrete, This might represent a loaf of bread from the clearance rack, but knowing what it means doesn't actually fill my belly when I'm hungry. Bread does. This dollar bill only accomplishes something when I turn it into food or patches for bicycle tubes or one shingle of a roof over my head for another month. Knowing what matters only matters when we do something with it. Pop quiz question number two, even harder. What's this it's a Bible I'm glad you studied the Bible it's the Word of God it's the the truth the way it's the roadmap for the kingdom it's the, the the path to the renewal of all things these are beautiful and meaningful concepts the most beautiful I have ever known but what happens when we let it stay just concepts when we read this holy truth, strive to understand it, talk about it, teach it, revere it, and then forget to do anything with it. What, ha- what meaning does it have then, just collecting dust on the bookshelves in our houses and our minds? And how can we do the most important part of the way of Jesus, taking concepts and words and turning them into action the way that Christ himself did over 33 dirt-caked years when he wore holes through his sandals, taking this truth and giving it hands and feet. Like every time we attempt to do away with pretense and start living in a way that matters more, this is a very heavy weight to lift, and I don't know about you guys, but I cannot do that on my own. I need help. So I'm going to pray now, and if that's a thing you do, please join me. Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for the fact that we are here. Not that this individual church building means anything, but that we are part of your church. God, thank you that we are part of your plan. Thank you for your words and your actions, Lord Jesus. Um, Help us to take those and do likewise. Please subtract any words that are in my notes that shouldn't be in my sermon, and please add anything in that you want to. Um, this belongs to you, not to me or any of us. So God, please do your thing, and we love you. Amen. Um, so, uh, if you have a Bible with you, feel free to open it up to Luke ten twenty-five, and that's going to be up on our screen too here. So, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? An expert in the law. So it was this guy's goal, it was his job to totally understand the Torah, the law of God. That's what we as Christians call the first five books of the Bible. To understand that and its interpretations, the traditions around it, to understand it better. His testing of Jesus could have been trying to discredit him, maybe, but in all likelihood, it was probably just trying to figure this Jesus guy out and whether he was who and what he said he was. "'What is written in the law?' Jesus replied. "'How do you read it?' He answered, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself.'" The expert is quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, which together, it kind of covered everything, right? Love God, love people. Check. Everything else God has ever taught us falls under those big, broad headlines. But man, those are pretty vague, aren't they? I'm really glad that that's not all God gave us to go on because when we have things staying as abstract as that, we could twist them to mean whatever we want. Yet, even if only in a vague and abstract kind of way, this expert's answer was right. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he, the expert, wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's a fair question. The expert wants to fully understand the commandments of God. Can you blame him? I mean, Jesus tells us again and again in different phrasings. In John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's that whole filling in the details thing that we needed. If we're serious about loving God and loving people, we need to know how. So it's a pretty good idea to ask, who's this neighbor fellow that I'm supposed to be loving? Yet the expert wasn't just in it to obey God better. Luke tells us that he wanted to justify himself, to prove himself righteous. Experts, they like being righteous. They like being right, in fact. It's kind of their job. If you're an expert who's not checking all the right check boxes, you may want to revisit your job title. And this is no ordinary kind of expertise. This is knowing the will of God himself. It's kind of a big deal. This expert wanted to obey God by checking the box next to love my neighbor that check and now I'm good traditionally the word that we translate in English as neighbor meant a fellow Israelite one related genetically or through the covenant that God made with Israel it was comforting to believe that it stopped there see if there are limits to the commandments to love my neighbor then I can complete it I can check the box because it's done If I define neighbor, me for example, to mean people in a one block radius of my house, and I act in love toward that one block radius of people, I can check the box. I've done it. I understand uh, Mr. Bon Jovi has seen approximately approximately a million faces, and he has in fact rocked them all. Good for Bon Jovi. Check your million person box. (laughs) Yeah, that was for you. (laughs) I don't know if I've met a million faces. I haven't rocked that many. But if I have a hundred neighbors and I've loved them all, great. Check the box. Gold star for me and Bon Jovi. We'll call it a draw. It's comforting to believe that that's how it works. But it's not. The kingdom of God has never been about finishing things and checking them off so that we can just clock out and be done. Do you guys know what a checkbox is? A checkbox is when you draw four walls and then you close them. Friends, the kingdom has no such borders. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Eesh. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Hooray, historical context. So, first things first, setting. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17-mile death trap. It was this high-walled valley. There were no exits. Once you're in, you're in. The terrain was rocky and uneven, and it was pockmarked with big caves all along the place. Prime real estate, if you're a professional robber. And there were a few of those. Everybody knew you were taking a risk every time you took that road. These folks didn't really have any good alternatives. Um, That was just kind of the main road to get from point A to point B. So along they went. The first guy gets jumped and beaten within an inch of his life. Things are not looking good. He's left for dead. And then along comes a priest and a Levite. Now, the Levites, as many of you know, were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and within that were the priests, the ones who carried out the sacrifices, made Israel right with God. They were the righteous ones. They were the heroes in any random story you might tell. Kind of like how these days, if you have a murder mystery, who did it? The butler. It's always the butler. The priests, they were always the good guys. We just knew this. They checked the boxes. They did all the right things, which largely consisted of not doing the wrong things. And in all of this, they needed to maintain an extra level of ceremonial cleanness before God. Part of that was not becoming defiled by touching or going near a corpse. Perhaps they thought that this assault victim was a murder victim. There was probably enough blood encrusting the sand and dirt around him to make him think that. So they pass by on the far side of the road, maybe say a prayer for justice to be done, someday, by someone. And they keep moving. And then the title character appears, our good Samaritan, which, as any good Jew of the first century can tell you, is an oxymoron. There are no good Samaritans. I'll skip most of the history lesson, but the people of Samaria were half Jew, half pagans, who had broken God's commandments by mixing faith in God our Father with worshiping dead stone idols, and they weren't even sorry about that. They viewed the Jews as the ones who were in the wrong. Clearly, they were not on the best of terms, these two groups. Some of you guys were here when Fran was uh, teaching the passage where Samaritans refused to provide shelter or hospitality to Jesus or his disciples. There was enough, uh, we'll put it mildly and call it, dislike between these two groups the James and John kindly offered to invoke the power vested in them to make those unwelcoming folks burst into flame. Besides, they're never going to do anything good with their lives anyway. But a Samaritan, verse 33, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. In a world before Neosporin, and this is helpful, just trust me. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. FYI, that would cover about a two-week stay. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three, he goes on, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law, who I'd like to think is turning several shades of red right now, trying to hold it together... Replied to the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. The the, the, the one, the, the kind, I mean, the guy from, look, it doesn't matter where he's from, the freaking third guy, okay? He can't even say it. The Samaritan. You know, the idol worshipping, no hospitality, unwelcome heretic, that one. He's the one who did it right not the righteous priest of the Most High God, because our usual good guy didn't actually do anything. Well, thanks for that, Jesus. (laughs) Why you got to be picking fights and making us look bad like that? Maybe because just looking good isn't enough. Maybe because merely being one of the righteous ones without action to back it up, is missing the point. You know what I find interesting about this? The way I see it, Jesus didn't actually answer the expert's question. In effect, he had asked Jesus, who fits inside the four walls of my checkbox? And apparently, Jesus does not care about that question. Instead of answering that, What he told the expert and what I think he's telling us is this. Destroy your checkbox. Smash those walls down until the bricks look like an unwinnable game of Tetris because we've been playing the wrong game anyway. This is the same Jesus of whom Paul spoke in Ephesians 2, the one who himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by doing away with ultra-narrow readings of God's law that let us decide who is worthy of our love and who isn't. Jesus calls us into a love that is bigger than walls like that. Pop quiz question three, the final round. So a man's walking down the alley right next to this building and is jumped, beaten severely, and robbed of his only sleeping bag, Does Jesus want us to help this person? The hardest one I know. Of course he does. Now, what if the situation is the same? Guy gets jumped, guy gets beaten badly, but what he's robbed of is one of his Rolexes. Do you think that Jesus cares that this child of God has more dollar bills than some other child of God? that he's somehow less worthy of our help? I don't recall Jesus ever saying, love your neighbors unless they're rich, or Republican, or progressive, or gay, straight, trans, undocumented, porn addicted, heads of corrupt and oppressive corporations, or televised Christian bigots who make the rest of us look very bad. What is your Samaria? You know, is it, is it the shooting gallery full of used heroin needles over by Confluence Park? Or is it the pages of the Fortune 500 list? Is it employees of head shops and Planned Parenthood or employees of Monsanto and the Denver Police Department? From which individuals are we going to withhold love spelled out in action? When God says to love our neighbors, no one is an exception. This concludes the half of the sermon that you have already heard before. Maybe dozens of times. If you've been in the church for a while, like me, and you've heard sermons on this, that's the message that went with it, right? Don't judge books by their covers. Love Love everybody. But look, Adam, this is the year of our Lord, 2015. We get that part. Prejudice is bad. (laughs) Knowing that truth, yeah, it's good and ultra necessary, but that's only the first half. I want to focus on the other half, not just knocking down walls between us and them, but knocking down walls between knowing about loving our neighbors and doing it. I mean, I grew up in the church as a pastor's kid. Do you have any idea how many sermons I've heard? Do you have any idea how many I have listened to, nodded, smiled, and went on with my life as if nothing happened? Letting nothing change inside me or in the way I do my life. I'm tired of living like that. Knowing but not really doing anything. And based on this teaching of Jesus, Plus James 2, Ephesians 2, Hebrews 6, Acts 26, all three chapters of Titus, John 14, 15, Luke 11, Mark 16, Matthew 5, 15, 19, 25, and almost every other time, Jesus opened his mouth. I think he's tired of that too. This is a parable about love. What is that? Affection, compassion, desiring somebody else's well-being. Fine so what? What does it do? In verse 33, if we can get that back up on the screen, we see that the Samaritan saw the man and had pity or compassion on him, depending on your Bible's translation of the Greek word splagnishnismai. You know the one. It's spelled like it sounds. Um, <laughs> that unpronounceable piece of Greek literally translates as To have the bowels yearn. What a wonderful phrase we've discovered together. (laughs) For the Jews, the intestines were thought to be the seat of emotions like compassion for somebody else. Sort of like how we in the West think for some reason that the center of our cardiovascular system is where our emotions live. And as awkward as the phrase, the yearning bowels is, and my Gosh, why is that not a punk band right now? (laughs) I really like the idea that it communicates. That feeling in the pit of your stomach when you see somebody suffering and you wish that they weren't, that you wish somebody would do something about that. We might call it a gut feeling. You can either feel that and walk it off, bludgeon it away with rationalization as to why you can't personally or you shouldn't right now do anything about it, or you can engage with it, can wade deeply into the discomfort of that situation and be moved to action, to be changed and to be change. Like a dollar bill, our pity or compassion for those in our world doesn't mean a thing until we transmute it and trans- trade it in for something tangible, like the Samaritan did. He converted a mere feeling into sacrificial action. And I think that term is key it's sacrificial action. Obeying Jesus and our mutual Father, it costs us something. Look at verses 34 and 35. It cost the Samaritan time. He was on his way somewhere, and he was a full day late. Probably missed out on some opportunities that he's not getting back. Might have some people very annoyed with him. It cost him material possessions. A commentary I read said that the bandages he used were probably fabric ripped from his own clothes. He used his own wine as a wound disinfectant and his own oil to soothe the man's bruised and broken skin. It cost him physical inconvenience. He was planning to ride his donkey on the stretch and instead walked for God only knows how long instead. It cost him emotional discomfort, that visceral fear of now spending way more time in this incredibly dangerous stretch of this Jewish road where he, a Samaritan, could be murdered even more easily than the man on his donkey almost was. And what about his reputation? If other Samaritans saw him going out of his way, putting in this much effort for a Jew, do you think he wouldn't get called a sellout, a traitor? And on top of all the rest, it cost him cash, enough money to pay for a two week stay at the nearest inn, plus putting himself on the hook for this unknown amount of extra expenses, totally at the innkeeper's discretion. This Samaritan uses a sizable chunk of his non-disposable income to totally underwrite this guy's recovery process, start to finish, of a stranger who, for all he knows, will never thank him. And if one day Jewish Samaritan tensions get as high as they had been in the past and there's open warfare, the guy he saved might come at him in battle and kill him. Are we prepared to love like that? Are we willing to love in practical actions when doing so means that we will lose something that we won't have replaced, be it time or money or reputation, convenience, not knowing what the total cost will be when we sign on so that somebody else can gain? Are we willing to be that kind of a neighbor? because the more I've been reading and studying this passage I just can't convince myself that anything less is the kind of costly love that Jesus is calling us to that's what this abstract thing called loving your neighbor looks like when you make it concrete when you trade it into a form that actually does something so what can our love do today Well, where does your life happen? The Samaritan presumably spent a good chunk of his time in Samaria around his own people. And guess what? So do we. In our neighborhoods, our jobs, our classrooms, this church building, whatever art or music scene you might be part of, whatever. So start there. If you want to obey Jesus by loving sacrificially, here's an idea. Let somebody in your community who's struggling right now financially Let them have your guest room, or if you don't have that, your couch for a little while so they can set up something more permanent. This will cost you privacy and a whole lot of convenience. Don't lament that loss. Rejoice in the fact that you get to do Christianity instead of just knowing about it. You got the better end of that trade. I won't name names, but somebody in our church family started doing this exact thing three days ago. I'm kind of jealous. Quick side note on this idea, be smart about this. Don't let somebody dangerous stay in your home with your family. There is such a thing as healthy boundaries. I'm just suggesting that there's such a thing as unhealthy boundaries, ones that only protect our convenience. And those are walls that have to come down. Here's some more ideas, just starting small and growing bigger. Offer to help your physical neighbors do yard work or some other grunt work around the house without being uh, asked to do it. I got to do this a little while ago and it was the first real conversation that I had ever had with those particular neighbors. My knees hurt like crazy and I got dirt in my eyes and I could have been in the AC playing Mega Man and it was awesome because I got to love my neighbors and actually get to know them and now, bonus, now there's precedent for this sort of thing so maybe I'll have more opportunities for that in the future. Go start something. You got kids, kids in school? Maybe volunteer as a tutor or a mentor to other kids in that school. You can make a pretty big impact in a kid's life that way by investing in them. That's a longer-term commitment, which means it's going to cost you more. And it means you get to love people even better. Better yet, do this if you don't have kids. And if the kid or kids you get paired with are really difficult, bonus. Is... Come of the Earth Church, your church community? If so, volunteer to start co-leading Sunday school or watching the babies during service or during the week. You know, Love the parents through giving them sanity breaks without them having to come begging for them or offering to pay you. Maybe start regularly volunteering to clean up after the service. Do you think that we only ask for volunteers because it has to get done? Because if you think that, you're missing the best part. It's an opportunity to love the people who live here and spend time in this building through sacrificial action on your part. Don't rob yourself of that opportunity by just seeing it as another necessary chore. Don't strip it of its meaning, of its power to help us grow beyond ourselves. What if when you see a coworker or a classmate who's falling behind in work or school you sacrifice your time to help them catch up especially if doing so is going to get you a worse grade or a worse job review this goes double by the way if they're falling behind is squarely their fault did you see the samaritan ask the assault victim why he was there what he was doing that got him jumped, why he was traveling alone, why he was dressing in a way that might have said he was made of money. We're not called to love only our neighbors that deserve it. We're not called only to love and support victims that we decide are innocent. And now that we've got the easy ones out of the way, he says, tongue firmly in cheek, None of this is easy. Not for me, not for you, not for anybody. If it's easy, we're doing it wrong. The gospel was never meant to be easy. It was meant to matter. The stuff we've talked about so far, it isn't easy, but it's at least stuff that comes up within the places and relationships that we ordinarily occupy. If you're anything like me and utterly fail at every geography test that you've ever seen, then, like me, you probably have no idea where that road was, but the Jerusalem to Jericho road, that's nowhere near Samaria. Samaria is off to the north. The road's down here, east to west, south of that. For the Samaritan man, this was probably well outside of his usual path. The usual walls and boundaries that defined his daily life. Not something that happened in his backyard. And thus, something that he could have very easily avoided getting involved with. Could have said, it's not one of my checkboxes. You take care of things on your side of the wall. Yet he got involved anyway. And as a result, Jesus points to him as a model of what it means to love. What's outside of our walls? outside Outside of our normal paths that we would have been on anyway? What if you set aside time to go sit on park benches or in diners, waiting for homeless folks and off-duty policemen who keep showing up there too, specifically to begin friendships with them? Not just to feed or serve or witness to them, all those are awesome things, but to befriend them. Got to know them on purpose, in ways and relationships that extend months or years beyond a one-off encounter. What if we discovered that way, the beautiful souls that we so often forget about because they're wrapped in dirty cardboard boxes or bulletproof blue? Two things that can both create incredible loneliness. What if when that high-maintenance person in your church community, workplace, campus, music scene needs somebody to talk with because they're going through a hard time, and you can tell, What if if instead of saying, you know, I feel for him, but I can't this month, and I'm sure somebody better qualified for it will take care of him. So I don't know about you guys, but that's the excuse that comes to my head first. What if instead, without anybody asking you, you started meeting with him every week or two? Just sitting down with him over coffee with somebody who needs a friend and being a listening ear because of how much you love Jesus and because of how much you know Jesus loves that person. What if Christians became a tribe known for our readiness to deprioritize our own self-focused comfort whenever there's somebody else to help? What if instead of being known as apathetic hypocrites who talk a good talk and that's all, what if instead we became known as radicals for love As people so radically from the root different from the self-interested world that we live in that people actually start caring about this Jesus that we say we worship like Mike said last week ministering to people's needs and pointing them to the presence of God that's two sides of the same coin we can't separate those we must not separate those what if the next time you heard a news story about justice for the immigrants or the homeless or a feud between groups in Denver or whatever your town is what if instead of changing the channel or going back to Facebook and Minecraft you decided to research the conflict and then once you understood it get to know the individuals involved in it the people not just the issue sure, to join collective action for justice to be an active peacemaker in a way that you're not just defending a position or proving a point, but you're loving people well out of obedience to our God. And why stop there? I mean, get creative. That's what some of the Earth Church is good at, right? What if we dreamed up you know, public demonstrations, flash mobs, protests, art campaigns, spoken word poetry on the 16th Street Mall, and conversation tables, all designed to thoroughly jack up people's conceptions of how the world works and who Jesus is what the word Christian means? What if we use every creative cell in our bodies to love people, using the gifts that God has given us and trading our priorities of the self for a life restructured to be about God and the world that he so loved that he sent his only son to go do something about it? This whole big thing is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately for a while now especially as I read a book by a brother of ours in the church called Shane. It's why I decided to start a small group this summer along with uh, Alex Kraft, that guy, where we'll be studying that book and the scripture that informs it and then turning that understanding into action. The book's called The Irresistible Revolution. I know some of you know it. And if any of you guys or gals feel like we do, hungry for a Christianity that's more than talk, one that knocks down the checkbox-shaped walls that isolate us from other people and separate love from action, then join us. There's a sign-up sheet back at The Scoop. Check it out later. It's, uh, it's taken me a while and a lot of going back and forth on this to get to this point a lot of wanting to do something more with my faith and then convincing myself I can't right now. Maybe someday. I've had that feeling the Samaritan man had, that stirring within me deep down in the pit of my stomach, a growing hunger to begin cultivating a life that doesn't just call itself Christian with words but claims that title with actions. It's taken me a long time. But I think I'm finally ready to complicate my life on purpose in pursuit of that love for God and neighbors that Jesus tells us about through the Samaritan story. I'm ready to start stoking a holy imagination, dreaming together with you guys about how we can take this thing called the way of Jesus far outside our little boxes. But listen, two things that I want to be a hundred percent crystal clear about before I sit down first one. These words are not meant to shame you. I am so not interested in pointing fingers and saying, Oh, you're not doing enough. You suck. No one is doing enough. All right. Forget enough. Forget your checkboxes that tell you whether you're one of the good ones or not. I don't care about that. And I'm not convinced that Jesus does either. What I care about and what I think Jesus cares about here is moving forward. Do you guys remember when we looked at uh, the parable of the sower and the four soils? What matters most is not where we happen to fall right now along that continuum of faithfulness. What matters most is that we push, that we keep moving forward, going deeper, loving more than we did yesterday. That's what I want for us and for me because call me greedy if you want but I want more of the kingdom I want more of a life that matters and I want a life that's bigger than itself so don't feel proud of checking checkboxes if you're doing a lot of this stuff right now and don't feel ashamed if you're not yet shame immobilizes and kills this is an invitation to live This is the meaning of our lives. The other thing, the second thing is this, and I mean this next phrase in the most literal sense, for the love of God, don't turn this sermon into just another set of checkboxes. Please. The reason that I'm shotgunning all these ideas, at you guys, about ways to love our neighbors is just to get the conversation started, to get us dreaming together. Shaking the rust and atrophy off the divine gift of a holy creativity that we can use to change the world, person by person, one act of sacrificial love at a time. That Shane Claiborne book study, it's one possible way to keep this thing rolling so it doesn't die before making it out the church doors. But it's just one venue for that. The irresistible revolution is not the Bible, and neither Shane Claiborne, Alex Kraft, or Adam Skinner are Jesus okay? I'd love to partner with you guys, my brothers and sisters, in that small group. I think it'll be great. I think we're going to come up with some stuff that's going to wreck our lives in the best way. Jesus is very good at that. But if that's not something that you can or will do, awesome. Go out and love your neighbors in other radical ways that inconvenience you. I'm excited to see what cool ways you guys come up with to change your lives so that we can change the world. I want to end by borrowing a quote from that book that we'll be studying this summer. It goes like this. If you ask the average person how Christians live, they are struck silent. We have not shown the world another way of doing life. Christians pretty much live like everybody else. They just sprinkle a little Jesus in along the way. And doctrine is not very attractive, even if it's true. Few people are interested in a religion that has nothing to say to the world and offers them only life after death. When what people are really wondering is whether there is life before death. And yet I am convinced that Jesus came not just to prepare us to die, but to teach us how to live. Friends, don't let this be like all those sermons I heard growing up. Sermons that go in one ear and out the other without changing anything because change costs me and I wasn't willing to trade anything away to get it. Keep this conversation going. Talk this over with other Jesus followers. Talk it over with Jesus. In just a minute, a couple of minutes, we're going to have folks back in that uh, little space we call the prayer cave for that specific purpose. If, like me, you're starting to feel that hunger down in the pit of your stomach, hunger for a life of compassion, if the Holy Spirit is stirring up momentum in your soul, please don't lose it. Let's keep moving forward, family. Let's keep going deeper, loving better, becoming more fully alive. Amen.